Disney Snow White, uh, you may recall, has a wicked witch who has her magic mirror on the wall and she wants it to tell her the truth and the mirror does tell the truth. So when she says mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? The mirror tells her and she's not very happy with what the mirror says. Uh, Mirrors are very important for us because they do tell the truth, don't they? And we depend on mirrors. We depend on them when we get up in the morning to have a little look and see what's going on. And perhaps after a hard day at work, or perhaps uh, if you're at the hairdresser, you like to have that mirror in front of you just to make sure that the right colour's going in and so on. Uh, Perhaps when driving a car, mirrors are very important and you want to know whether or not it's safe to change lanes and whether it's safe to brake suddenly or if there's a big truck coming down behind you or whatever. Perhaps also uh, mirrors are good when you've got that pain on your chin and you want to look and see what it uh, is. Or when you've blown your nose after a sneeze and you want to make sure that you cleaned up properly. Because when we look in the mirror, what we're looking for is something that's not right so that we can fix it up. It would be foolish to look in the mirror, see that something's not right and then go away and do nothing about it. Indeed, The book of James points out to us that God's word is much like a mirror and when we expose ourselves to God's word but we pay no attention to what is said there and don't remember it, then it's as pointless as looking in a mirror and going away and forgetting what you look like. Well, as we come to this passage, uh, I've called it Seeing Yourself Clearly because I think it shows us some things about ourselves and there's an outline that you'll find on the handout that you received when you came in. In the passage, Jesus is telling a parable at the start of what was read to us about two men who go up to the temple to pray. Uh, Two very different men. They have very different lifestyles. They pray in a very different way because their view of themselves is very different. And of course, at the end, when they go home, their status before God is very different as well. So we have the Pharisee and we have the tax collector. Now, the Pharisee, teacher of the law, Access to the scriptures in the know with God. He's a very religious man, very pious, and you would certainly expect to find him in the temple. However, as we read on in the passage, we discover that for all his piety and his knowledge, he has a problem. And that is that he doesn't have understanding. He couldn't see clearly at all. Let's have a look at his prayer. It's in verse 11. Standing to pray which was a fairly common thing to do as he takes his stand there. Uh, But as he starts praying, he begins with thanks, which is good, but the thanks is not what we expect. He's not thanking God for God's blessings or what God's done. He's thanking God for how amazing he is. And it's like, thank you, God, that I'm the best, is basically what he's saying. He's boasting about himself. Now, Jesus in Matthew's Gospel in the Sermon on the Mount had warned about those who are hypocrites. He says, whenever you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by people. And I assure you, they've got their reward in full. God's not going to reward people who seek the accolades of others in the way that they pray. And it seems that that's what this Pharisee is doing. He's, he's there to promote himself. There's no humility in his prayer. It's all pride and arrogance. There's no admission of wrongdoing. He just thinks he's right with God. It's his assumption. And of course, there's no expression of need or dependence on God. Rather, it's just his achievements that he refers to. 
He does not understand prayer. And he doesn't understand righteousness because as he prays, he thinks he's right with God because of the things that he's done. And he believes his good works gains acceptance. Look at his words in verse 11. Thank you, God, that I'm not like other people, the greedy, the unrighteous, the adulterers. I'm not even like this tax collector. You can imagine the disgust on his face that the tax collector would even face up to the synagogue to pray or to the temple to pray. I mean, this guy doesn't belong here. Because then comes the resume. Those of you who are Survivor fans still, uh, I'm a Survivor fan. I've been watching it for too long. Any other Survivor fans around here? Oh, good work. Okay. Uh, earlier today, I think we had three or four people in one of the congregations and um, I had to explain it. Uh, in Survivor, the buzzword is resume. I don't know if you've noticed this. As they're competing in making moves on one another and lying and deceiving each other, it's all about building up their resume so when they get to the the end, if they make it to the end, they can appeal to the jury on all the big moves that they made and all the credits that they'd stored up for themselves such that they should be voted to become the sole survivor and win the half million dollars. And this is very much what I see with this Pharisee, right? He's appealing to his resume. You can see it in verse 12. Now, it's not long. There's only two things, but gee, they're impressive. First one, he says, I fast twice a week. Now, the law required in Leviticus that people fasted once a year in preparation for the Day of Atonement. But this guy's doing it twice a week. There's 52 weeks in a year, so he's doing it over 100 times a year. Like, whoa, this guy's a spiritual hero. He says, I give a tenth of everything I get. Now, if we were to look back into the law, they weren't required to give a tenth of absolutely everything, including the garden herbs. But Jesus in Luke chapter 11 has a go at the Pharisees because they even tithe their garden herbs. Right? They are fully on top of everything that God wants them to do, plus they're adding more. And he appeals to this, that he's super spiritual. And what he says about himself, no doubt, is true because it's a made-up story. Right? Jesus is saying, this guy does these things. You would think he'd be right with God. He certainly thought he was himself. But none of these things make him right before God. The problem is he's depending on himself and what he can do. He's so full of himself that there's no room left for God. And Jesus makes it very clear in verse 14 that the Pharisee did not go home justified before God. So he misunderstood prayer and he misunderstood righteousness, but he also misunderstands the tax man who's there. He makes massive assumptions about him that because he's a tax man, then he must be grouped with those who are greedy, those who are unrighteous, those who are adulterers. And certainly that was the way tax men were looked upon. You know, Jesus is associating and having dinner with sinners and tax collectors. Awful. I'm reminded of Rowan Atkinson. He does this sketch where he is the devil and he's in hell marking the role and he's got his clipboard there and he's getting people into groups. And at one point he says, um, looters and pillagers, if you could come forward, please just form a group over here. Thank you. Yes. And uh, thieves, could you join them? And bank managers. 
and there's this assumption that the occupation means you're a crook. And this is what's going on with the Pharisee here. He looks at the tax collector and all he sees is a crook, a sinner, a man who shouldn't be here. But he was wrong. Because again, Jesus makes it clear that it's the tax collector who goes home justified before God. Well, let's look at the tax collector. Typically, it would be a Jewish person working for the Romans, so it would be considered to be a bit of a traitor. And no doubt there were tax collectors who did rip people off. We meet one of them in the next chapter, Zacchaeus, in chapter 19. They're always identified as being sinners when we see them, it seems, in the Bible. You certainly wouldn't expect to see the tax collector in the temple praying. Well, this man might not have the knowledge that the Pharisee has, but he certainly has understanding of what prayer is all about. And he certainly can see himself clearly. Have a look at his prayer, verse 13. First thing we notice is he stands far off. He's at a distance. He knows who it is he's about to come before. And he doesn't just boldly come in with arrogance, but there's humility. My first job with Wallace and Spratt Consulting Engineers in Chatswood when I was doing electrical engineering at at university, uh, the, the boss, Bernie Spratt, although we never called him Bernie when he was there, it was always Mr. Spratt. When you went to see him in his office, you would always knock and then you would wait for him to summon you in. You never just walked into his office. He's the boss and he deserves respect. And this is the way the tax collector is approaching here. He's staying at a distance. He won't even raise his eyes to heaven, but he's looking down. I mean, it would have been quite normal to pray like this, but his head is downcast. He's got his fist and he's striking his chest. There's a whole posture here of shame, wrongdoing that he's aware of. There's no arrogance. There's no pride. There's just a simple plea for mercy. Now, we don't know how dishonest he was in his job, but whatever he'd done, he felt the weight of it and the guilt as he came before God. So he says, God, turn your wrath from me, a sinner. Notice he doesn't compare himself with anyone else. doesn't try and make out that he's doing better than someone else. He just owns his own responsibility. He compares himself with God's standard and sees how far short he falls. There's great humility and conviction of wrong here in the tax collector. He knew he didn't deserve God's forgiveness, but he asked for it anyway. He doesn't appear to his resume and whatever achievements he might have. He just says, God, please be propitious toward me. Turn aside your wrath. And his prayer was answered. And he went home justified. Didn't earn it, didn't deserve it. But God graciously gave it to him. Well, we're going to come back to this parable uh, a little bit later. But let's move on to the next section about the children from verse 15. We read some people were even bringing children to Jesus so that he might touch them. Now, we presume this is so that Jesus will bless the children. Normally, we presume that because the little subheading in our Bible says Jesus blesses the children or something to that effect. But it's not actually in the text. In fact, as we look at Luke's Gospel, the only uh, previous occasion where people brought others to Jesus that he might lay his hands on them was because they were sick. So in chapter 4, verse 40, when the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick 
with various diseases brought them to Jesus and he laid his hands on each one of them and would heal them. So perhaps the children are not well, we're not told, but they're bringing their children so that Jesus might lay his hands on them. And the disciples notice this and they're not impressed and they rebuke these people. Perhaps, you know, they say something like, what are you doing bringing kids to bother Jesus with? Jesus is far more important than to spend time with children. And we're the disciples. If you take time from Jesus, then he's not going to be there to educate and train us like uh, he's meant to be doing. So keep the kids away. Well, who knows what they said. We're not told the words, but they rebuked these people. And we're reminded, though, of Jesus' words in the passage immediately before Look at the end of the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. See, the disciples are demonstrating the heart of the Pharisee as they rebuke those who bring the children. There's an arrogance and a superiority at work here, and it's time for them to be humbled. So Jesus, in the next verse, overrules what the disciples have said, and he invites the children to come to him. He says, let the little children come to me and don't stop them because the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Now, sometimes you hear this read and it's like, oh no, let the children come to me. Don't stop them. But if we look at Mark's gospel, we find out Jesus says this line and he's indignant as he says it. So it's really strong. It's like, let the children come to me. Do not stop them. For the kingdom belongs to such as these. Children matter to Jesus. The kingdom of God is available to them. And we should not hold back the gospel from them. Well, do we believe this is true? Do we pray for the children who gather at our church? Saturday night, Sunday morning, Monday afternoon? Do we pray for the leaders of the children who gather at our church? Do we pray for Leah as she leads, trains and encourages the leaders of the children who gather at our church? Do we believe that Jesus says the kingdom belongs to children? Do we pray for the children in our local schools? Do we pray for the SRE teachers who open the Bible with the children in our local schools? Do we pray for the government to continue to legislate for the teachers to be able to open the Bibles with the children in the local schools? Do we believe that the kingdom of God belongs to children? Do we pray for many children to register at the Kids Holiday Club in April? Do we offer ourselves to do what we can to serve in ministry to children, whether it be Saturday night, Sunday morning, Monday afternoon, SRE in schools, or indeed at the Kids Holiday Club coming up in April? Do we believe what Jesus says about the kingdom belonging to children? And are we doing whatever we can to make sure that the message of the gospel gets to children? Well, actually, Jesus says more than just that. When we look at verse 17, he says, I assure you, whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. 
So not only does the kingdom belong to children, but those who are like children. So it belongs to adults as well. Woohoo! If they're willing to be like children. You see, if you don't welcome the kingdom of God like a child, you'll find yourself outside of the kingdom of God. Unlike adults, children are dependent on others. They believe the promises that we make to them. They trust us. They're vulnerable. They know their place. They certainly don't have resumes to appeal to. They haven't lived long enough to build it up. And when it comes to entering the kingdom of God, Jesus is very clear. He's saying there is no place for pride. There's no place for discrimination. There's no place for resumes. And there's no place for independence. Whoever does not welcome the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Well, what about the rich ruler? How does this fit in? Well, he's a man of authority. He's a ruler. We find out as the story goes on that he's also wealthy. He's a man of of means. He's rich. So I imagine he could have whatever he wanted. He could order it, bring it. He could pay for it. If it was expensive, he's certainly got the resources. He should be satisfied. Yet he's missing something and he knows it. And so he comes to Jesus and he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's got no assurance. And he asks, what must I do? Because he thinks gaining eternal life is about our actions and the things that we do. But you don't do anything to inherit. You inherit because of who you are, because of the relationship you have with the person who's going to give you what you're inheriting. So he says, good teacher, what must I do? And Jesus begins by pointing out that there is only one who's good, and that's God. And then quizzes him about his own goodness. He appeals to commandments 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, but not quite in that order. And the man says, yeah, yeah, I've kept all of those since I was a a little tucker. And Jesus doesn't go, sure. He just lets that go. And then says, yeah, but you lack one thing. You still lack one thing. Sell all that you have and distribute it to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. You see, the man had kept these other commands, but he didn't put God first. His wealth was first. So he'd broken the first commandment. He didn't depend on God alone, but he depended on the things of this world that he'd accumulated. So he'd broken the second commandment because he worshipped his wealth was his idol and he couldn't let go of it he went away sad because he coveted what he had and had broken the 10th commandment he wasn't good enough and could never be good enough and he goes away sad because what Jesus has put before him is too much to pay his master was his money Jesus watches him go away and he says this How hard it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
Now, this is a literal image. Jesus isn't sort of saying, well, it is possible because, you know, there's this gate at the side of Jerusalem. It's only very small and some people call it the needle gate. And, you know, for a camel to get through is really hard. But if they take all the packs off the camel and it gets down on its knees and it can work its way through very humbly and not bringing anything with it, then it can gain access, you know, and this is what we're talking about. No, there's no such gate. Not that I'm able to discover. Jesus is intentionally pointing out something that's ridiculously impossible. And we see that a bit further on when he says, what's impossible with man is possible with God. I mean, Jesus nowadays might have said something like, you know, it's easier to drive a semi-trailer through the center of a donut without damaging the donut than for a rich person to enter the kingdom. And what is impossible for man is possible with God. We see that in the next chapter with Zacchaeus, whose heart is changed. Peter speaks up. He says, look, we've left what we had to follow you. And Jesus says, yeah, that's fine. I assure you, anyone who leaves the things of this world because of the kingdom of God won't fail to receive far more than they had left, both here and in the age to come. Well, I'm not going to talk a whole lot about money and wealth and so on. We had a great sermon. Andrew Barry preached a few weeks back, and you can refer to that one. But as we look at all these passages, what are they saying to us? If this is the mirror of God's word, what is it revealing? Do we see ourselves clearly? Look back at the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You might call it two ways to pray. It's easy for us to read the story and see the problems with the Pharisee, isn't it? I mean, I pointed them all out. And it's easy for us to judge his arrogance. It's easy for us to point the finger at his folly and to shake our finger at his lack of understanding and to pray, God, thank you that I am not like this Pharisee. And in doing so, it's easy to have the heart of the Pharisee. Right at the beginning, before the parable, we're told, Jesus, this is verse 9, Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and looked down on everyone else. Do we see ourselves clearly when we start playing comparison with other people and start to think we're better than others and we show ourselves to have the heart of the Pharisee and we exalt ourselves even if it's just within ourselves? And we're warned that those who do that will be humbled. But the one who's humble himself will be exalted. Far better to be like the tax collector and to know our sin and how undeserving we are and that we bring nothing that would bring credit to us and just depend upon God's mercy The story of the children, well, it's easy to read this story and remember songs like, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. We won't keep going. (laughs) We can remember that and never really deal with the fact that we need to be like a child to enter into God's kingdom. You see, we live in a world that's more interested in things like honour, reputation, Success, independence, we jostle for greatness 
and we fail to see where true greatness lies in humility, in servanthood, and in trusting the one who truly is great. And the story of the rich ruler, well, it's easy to look at that story and say, gee, lucky I'm not rich. He's got a lot. But you know, if you sleep in your own bed, have access to education and own more than two pairs of shoes, you're in the top 7% of wealth within the world. We are very rich. Now, maybe you don't have financial resources compared with people around you, and so you think, actually, I'm not that wealthy in the context in which I live. But we do like to have it both ways. We like to hold on to the things of this world like the rich man did, and we do like to have this treasures in heaven as well. If we can have a bit of both, yeah. You know, pie in the sky when we die and steak on the plate while we wait. That'd be wonderful. See, what comes between us and trusting fully in God? What's our number one? Where is our wealth? You know, it might not be in riches in the bank. It might be in our abilities that we depend on. It might be our intellect. It might be our social connections. It might be our lifestyle, status. There's all sorts of things that we hold on to and love and feed because that's where we find our meaning and our security when we should be finding it in a relationship with God. So how do you see yourself? Do you see yourself clearly? Well, do you? Let me pray. Look, God, we thank you for Luke and we thank you for this passage. As we look at it, it's easy to try and put ourselves in a position that looks good. And yet if we're honest and look into the mirror of your word, we will see that there's some problems that we have too. Father, help us to recognize where we fall short to own our guilt before you. Father, we pray that you would turn your wrath from us, sinners as we are. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We thank you that in your mercy, you poured your wrath out onto him for those who would come as children, not with resumes, not with pride or arrogance, but total dependence upon you and what you have done for us through him. Father, thank you for Jesus' life, his death and his resurrection, that we might have the opportunity to enter into your kingdom. Father, help us to do it with humility, recognising how undeserving we are, but so thankful that you have made it possible through your Son. Father, help us to hang loosely to the things of this world, but that we would grip tightly to the treasures of your kingdom. And we pray this, that Jesus would be honoured in our lives. Amen.